Welcome to the podcast, Neither Free Nor Fair, about election security and the fate of democracy in the 21st century. This is episode six, The Online Rumor Mill. I'm James Long, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Washington and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum. On today's episode, I want to return to some topics we discussed on previous podcasts about the roles of misinformation in social media by diving deeper into a discussion of where rumors, fake news, and deep fakes actually start online why and how they spread, and what, if anything, that means for protecting electoral integrity. Co-hosting with me today is Morgan Wack, the producer of this podcast and researcher at the Election Integrity Project. Hi, Morgan. Hi, James. We are joined for this discussion today by Emma Spiro, an associate professor in the Information School and the co-founder of the Center for an Informed Public at the University of Washington. Emma is also the co-director of both the Data Lab and Social Media Lab, where she researches online rumors and how they pollute political discourse on social media and magnify real world crisis events. Hi, Emma. Hi, James. Hi, Morgan. So Emma, we had your colleague, Jevin West, on the podcast last week, who raised many of the broad issues facing uh, misinformation and social media ahead of this year's election. But Morgan and I wanted to take the opportunity with you to explore further some specific threats that online communications may pose to real world events like elections. But first, what is an online rumor? That's a great place to start, James. And I think um, oftentimes we don't step back and actually think about the terminology that we're using in these cases, especially in this particular domain. Um, And I think this is really important because the words that we use, especially when we talk about information and how information spreads, really do carry assumptions about who's participating, how it spreads, what uh, solutions might be possible and or even desirable in these cases. Um, So we've been studying uh, rumors for a really long time, good on, I don't know, decade now, let's say. So we define rumors as information that's being talked about. And at the time it's being talked about, it's unverified. So that means for us, a rumor could turn out to be true or it could turn out to be false. Um, And you might sort of distinguish that from misinformation, which we think about as false information, or even disinformation, which is false or misleading information that's sort of shared or spread for some objective, political objective, personal objective, Um, and fake news, which we tend to think about as false information that is portrayed as news or fact. So when you talk about these different aspects of rumors, you have in your previous work talked about how rumors aren't necessarily good or bad. They're, can, they can be indifferent, they can be one or the other. So can you explain for us how a rumor could be perceived as good or bad? And can you possibly give us an example? Uh, yes. So um, we actually build a lot of our work from the very long history of studies um, of informal communication or rumoring behavior in the social sciences. And so when you think about this from a sort of social science perspective, there's been a lot of theory that's been developed about how rumors can actually serve a social function. A context where we've operated a lot and this has been traditionally studied is during the context of crisis events. So imagine there's a large earthquake or an upcoming election um, and people are really uncertain about what's going on and they have to make decisions Um, In the crisis context, these can be life or death decisions, right? Do I evacuate my home um, or do I not? And so in many cases, this informal communication, when groups get together and try to make sense of what's going on, that really does help relieve some of this anxiety, um, relieve some of the uncertainty and allow them to make those decisions, right? So you talk to your neighbors, you collectively decide, yes, we need to evacuate right now because the cost of not evacuating is higher than 
the cost of evacuating and then us being wrong, right? For that to be based on false information, perhaps. So that's a, a sort of example where, where we think about rumors, whether they turn out to be true or false, can actually be helpful for group sense-making or collective sense-making um, and serve that social function of helping people to make decisions in the face of very sort of anxiety-provoking contexts. So then an online rumor is very much like a rumor rumor, like a game of telephone. Maybe you whisper something or you hear something or it's early stages about something emerging and you, you, you've heard information and you're passing it to one person or another. Is there a specific online aspect of the rumor itself that helps us understand either the ways that it's similar to just kind of a, a normal rumor that we may say out loud or different? You know, a lot of the early theories of rumor really did uh, sort of operationalize or, or think about rumors like the game of telephone. Right? And so if you can imagine that game of telephone, you know, one of the things you might be concerned about and why the game is sort of so fun to play, let's say, is because of the distortion that might happen. Right? So as the rumor travels through person to person or along the social ties, it might become distorted. And so that was the focus, this distortion process was really the focus of a lot of early work. Why did that get things get distorted? How did they get distorted? And then what was the implication of that? Now, as a much of this work, sort of research on online sense-making and rumors has, has translated online, we also see that some of those things apply, but there's also very different affordances of the platforms that we now use for communication, right? So on Twitter, yes, you could see distortion, but you also have things like copy and paste or retweet mechanisms that allow you to pass information on without um, some of that built-in distortion. Um, and you also have environments where it's likely that you can, instead of go from one to one or one to small group, you can go from one to many. Right? So you can post something on Twitter and hundreds or thousands or millions of people will see it as opposed to walking down the street and telling your neighbor what you overheard at the grocery store. So actually one of the big questions in our grants over the past few years has been to try to understand the ways in which these more traditional theories of rumoring behavior do or do not apply in the online settings. So would it be fair to say then that one of the things that the online world maybe does is allow the rumors to spread faster just sort of the the ease of communication is is made is made easier, but also the sort of policing of the rumor or the clarification or the verification also faster. Yes, yeah, speed is definitely um, a factor here. You know, things travel fast in word of mouth, as as many of us might have experienced in our own sort of local communities. Um, but the speed at which things can travel sort of globally online is is really unprecedented. Um, and I think that partially the the sort of one-to-many spread here, you know, that's something that used to happen in more traditional broadcast channels and now can happen from individuals in, in sort of social media and other online platforms. So in terms of amplification and content, you've talked a bit, I think we can all understand how amplification might be something specific to the online space. And I'm worried, I'm wondering more about content as well. Do you see differences in the rumors that pick up steam or that are amplified in terms of content? Are people more willing online to share things that they might not with a neighbor or somebody that they work with in a close personal offline environment? Yeah, that's a really great question, uh, Morgan. And, you know, in, in many ways, that kind of comparative research is really challenging to do because we don't have a lot of um, cases to compare against. Um, you know, I think that one thing, we do see a lot of similarities, actually, right? So the examples I mentioned previously in the crisis context where the cost of not sharing information, right, could be death. 
um, makes people a little bit more willing to share things that could be false because of the high consequences of not sharing them. Now, when you get into online environments, I think one of the one of the challenges here is that people are often operating without a lot of time to make uh, sort of critical decisions about what to share or not to share. So I wouldn't say it's sort of completely distinct and separate, um, but there's definitely new dynamics that are introduced because of the ways that platforms allow you to amplify things and the ways that they support that amplification with their own algorithmically curated sources of information or feeds of information as well. What is the difference, Emma, between an online rumor and fake news? And are we always supposed to have air quotes around fake news? <laughs> That's a great question. You know, we we tend not to use the term fake news because of the way that that term specifically has sort of been weaponized in the past, right, by various parties. Um, and so we, you know, it depends on what we're looking at, but we definitely focus a little bit more on both at the Center for an Informed Public and also in some of the other work that I've been doing over the past decade on things like misinformation and disinformation, or even sort of strategic information operations um, is a term that we sometimes use or phrase we sometimes use. I think that for me, I think the the term uh, rumor is a, a little bit more all encompassing because it's really hard to determine what's true and what's false during some of these contexts, right? And, and actually we've made a point in some of our research projects to actually go seek out rumors that turn out to be true. For example, we have studied a, a hostage crisis situation, um, and it turned out to be true that there was a local radio host on who was uh, having a phone conversation with the hostage taker in that situation. But during the time it was being talked about, we weren't quite sure whether it was true or false. So trying to compare the information dynamics between true rumors and false rumors is also something that we've tried to do in our work. And I think that's really important, right? If we only focus on the things that tend to spread fast and sort of far, um, we miss a lot of the important dimensions of what actually distinguishes information that spreads from information that doesn't spread or information that turns out to be true and information that turns out to be false. So I want to talk about elections. And one of the things that we discussed last week with Jevin is that you know, I think a lot of people, when they think about election material and social media and misinformation, they think about what happened in 2016, sort of false stories, advertising false events or false things about candidates. So truly fake news or things that are just the, the weaponizing information, potentially even disinformation. Well, what's evolving in this election specifically is that there are a lot of things around the election that people may not actually have very good information on. And there could be honest rumors about you know, was this ballot box actually destroyed by a, a truck? Was was it true that, you know, is it true that it took people 10 hours to vote? Is it true that you have to have a stamp or not on the ballot or it's prepaid, all of these things? So because Americans are now entering an election period where there's just a lot of new, you know, new things that they have to worry about. So how do you see or think about this election as a crisis event? And what do you see as the role of online rumors in it? Yeah, so I mean, we tend to be very broad in our definition of crisis, right? So in the past, we've looked a lot at natural disasters and the things that you might traditionally think about natural hazards as crisis events. Um, but we've also looked at school shootings, we've looked at instances of political or civil unrest. Um, and so I, I would say that the features of those events that we often think about as indicative of crisis events, the, the primary one being here, very high levels of uncertainty definitely apply to this election, right? As you pointed out, James, there's a lot of new questions. There's a lot of 
uncertainty about how things are going to unfold and what's going to happen and from individuals all the way up through the the current administration um, and so I think this is this is definitely something that we consider from the sort of framework of studying crisis events and we're, we're taking a lot of those lessons into our exploration of this current election cycle and and the things that are leading up to um, our November election. Just following up on that very quickly, what makes these type of crisis events different from events that don't have a central focus point or focal point to which these kind of rumors can latch onto? You you describe it as an anxiety of uncertainty that surrounds these events. And I'm wondering, this election period, what about these rumors that you've seen come through really propels them or differentiates them from the rumors that don't catch on? Is there a way of analyzing or have you been able to analyze these rumors and find that certain types of rumors that address specific content issues or specific anxieties are the ones that catch on in the broader public? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, Marie. And you know, in some ways this is, a, is something that is one of those core questions within sort of the, the social studies of rumoring behavior and misinformation and, and now disinformation is really to try to figure out why some things spread and why others don't. Um, and, and I don't know if we've fully answered that question, um, but we have some ideas of, about um, some of these things. We know that information that tends to sort of elicit emotional responses um, gets spread, right? So there used to be a kind of theory of what, what used to be called wish and dread rumors. Right, so when you wish for things and it's sort of a happy take on things that's less likely to spread and things that are just really sort of dire um, interpretations of the context tend to spread more. And so we see things like that. Um, I think for this particular case, there's a lot people have invested um, in the outcomes that are gonna be upcoming. And so that um, also sort of speaks to our emotional states and our worldviews, right? We, we sort of tend to think about rumors as, you know, not necessarily something that's completely fabricated and, and completely outside the realm of believable, right? They kind of, they build on those things that sort of we believe in or value already and try to take advantage of the fact that they do sort of align with our, our way of viewing the world. And that sort of helps to keep them sort of within a frame of salient information within a specific community. So Emma, can I describe for you my own wish and dread at, at an election <laughs> yeah. and, then, and then have you tell me why I should either be more wishful or less dreadful? Okay, so here's my wish and dread I'm thinking of. In 2000, because of the disputed vote count in Florida, when the networks called Florida very early on for Al Gore, and some of that was based on the exit polling. Then in 2004, the networks were very reticent to use the exit polls in an oversized way in terms of their projection. That's not the only thing they ever use. They use real vote counts as well, but they were very, very cautious. But on election day in 2004, I had this wish and dread thing. I was constantly trying to find out if anybody would leak rumors of what the exit poll results were throughout the day before the networks came on to announce kind of state by state who had won. But my question is, you know, those rumors would have only done me good for a few hours because then what then at some point we're all watching, you know, the three networks or the three networks plus some cable news, and we're all kind of coordinating on the real information. So I'm wondering, you know, what is the lifespan on these election rumors and you know whether they're wish and dread or not? 
And isn't there a point at which it's something that is this important and is such a focal point that we're all just going to converge on the real news and what the real information is that we have, because we're all waiting for the Associated Press to call the race or we're all watching NBC, ABC or CBS? Yeah, that's a great question is, you know, we actually had a uh, <laughs> discussion earlier today about what that post voting pre sort of decision period is going to look like in this election. And I think there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of unknowns, you know, we're, we're thinking a lot about based on the evidence of cases that we've seen already and the empirical evidence for what might fill that information void, right, where we don't probably know what the election is going to be called as. There's a lot of things that are going to happen during that period of time, I think, because of the uncertainty. It's really challenging, I think, in this particular case, because everybody is a little bit, um, we're, we're sort of in unprecedented, we have some ideas about what's going to happen in that period, um, but it's hard to anticipate everything that could happen. So I think your example of the, the more traditional media outlets calling things one way or the other is a really great one. We have experts whose job it is to think about these kind of productions and use specific kinds of evidence to, to make those um, sort of calls, predictions. But this session cycle, we're going to have different amounts of information coming in at different periods of time. And so you know, one of the things that we are expecting to see based on polls and, and surveys that have come out already is a bit of a shift in what might look like the sort of leading um, candidate uh, over time as we shift from counting in-person votes to mail-in votes. So we'll see. Yeah, it's a great point. As Emma said, we had a meeting about this earlier, and I was wondering, James, if you could provide us with some comparative context, because the U.S. has been relatively spoiled in recent elections and having the vote count be relatively quick and being able to come up with a general prediction of who's going to win large elections the day of or within a few days of the election. But this is not always the case in other countries or in other contexts. And I'm wondering from your experience working on these contested elections, if you could give us a, a sense of what you expect or what we should look out for in these kind of uncertain post-election periods. Well, I would say in my own experience, I think there's two things to add on top of kind of the general work that Emma and her colleagues are doing. One is that I think in other countries, there's more rumors. And two, I think there haven't been historically uh, the ability to converge on the truth through normal broadcast news or newspapers as quickly as in the United States. So I'll give you an example. Um, the very first international election observation mission or observation I did was in Kenya in 2007. And that election, um, I mean, you probably know, is kind of this iconic case of rumors building around how the ballots were being counted. And you sort of have newspapers releasing editions once a day. And then over certain days, you see you're seeing the vote count shift in ways that were surprising. And so people sort of filling in with the rumors in the meantime as well as the votes coming in on television. Now, of course, most Kenyans at that time didn't have television, but um, even on TV, people are trying, you know, it's broadcasters just trying to relay what the vote counts are, but all sorts of rumors going on um, uh, about various political actors and factions and various machinations, and a lot of it spread on SMS. And that's actually where, you know, where the development of Ushahidi, this crowdsourced platform, allowing people to report on what they have and then kind of follow up to try to tamp down on rumors at the same time as provide information really developed from. But I can tell you, Morgan and Emma, I sat, you know, I was there in Nairobi. I was, I was on my phone the entire time texting and calling people. You know, this is before really Facebook was, was big, before Twitter 
uh, and other uh, media and, and mediums and, you know, SMS is kind of how we did it. And it took a very long time and you sort of get the rumor resolved at the point that all the thing, you know, it's all too late to do anything about, you know, the president's on his way to get inaugurated. That's the point at which you kind of, the rumors have resolved themselves and you know what the outcome is. James, do you think that there are, are also going to be some things that never get resolved? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, there definitely were in Kenya because, you know, it's a big country and there's rumors about what's going on with the central vote count, but there's also rumors about how various parties or factions in, you know, in the cities and in the countryside are mobilizing. That's what happened in Kenya because there was post-election violence after allegations of fraud. And I think you could see a somewhat similar situation here precisely, Emma, for the reason you said, which is that, you know, this isn't really just going to be one day. You know, Americans that are used to seeing the, you know, knowing the results by the time they go to bed, this could take weeks and weeks. And that's much more like what a lot of developing countries face. They don't have vote counts done automatically and, and that easily. And so I think that really does open up the opportunity and the space for a lot of these rumors to spread. And I think at the end of the day, kind of regardless of what happens, certain rumors will probably be always believed by certain sides because they didn't like the outcome that came about. Yeah, this is an interesting segue to some of your work on the quantitative or at least the mathematical side. And I'm wondering, Emma, if you could describe for us your idea of rumor proportions. You have talked in the past about how both media platforms, traditional and social media platforms, have approached the addressing of rumors, whether taking off rumors that are notably false or labeling rumors they believe to be false. You have uh, another conception which kind of relies on the wisdom of crowds in some way, or at least some sort of crowdsourcing. That's, and I was wondering if you could tell us about how you feel rumors should be addressed and why it's not so simple uh, to just take away rumors that are automatically false. Yeah, that's a great question, Morgan. And so I think, you know, a lot of this work stems from the fact that we are operating in, from sort of a more social science perspective that there is a social value um, to people being able to informally communicate and sort of rumor with each other um, because we still think about rumors as something that could turn out to be true or could turn out to be false. And very, you know, if you if you take a very top-down approach and just say, we should get rid of all rumors, right, that are, are sort of flowing in our platform, that gets very close to censorship and it does sort of not take into account this potential benefit of rumors in some cases. Um, and so some of the work that I did um, over the past couple of years actually with a postdoc of mine, Pete Craft, was to think about you know, people as sort of an information processing system um, online, right? So they're taking in tidbits or facts or observations about the world and they're trying to reconcile them with each other and with themselves. And they're trying to process in to what they think is the sort of current state of the world, right? And so one of the things that we've talked about is maybe a better way to look at this rather than just say, is this rumor true or is this rumor false? And that determine the sort of platform action is to think about, well, is the sort of support or um, denial of this particular rumor in proportion to the evidence on either side, right? What evidence means here, I think is a, in our sort of conceptualization, a little bit more um, nebulous, harder to determine. But, you know, and one of the things that might be concerning in that framework is when rumors are growing out of proportion, right? So when they are growing sort of disproportional to what you might think about it as sort of the evidence or claims for or support for 
that particular rumor. Um, and so that paper kind of makes a, a more conceptual argument of it's too simplistic to think about true rumors and false rumors. What we want to be able to do is think about rumors that are growing out of proportion, sort of where the amplification is outpacing what we might see as the evidence for that particular side of the story. Yeah, I want to ask a question on this um, and, and being a little controversial, which is, at least with respect to elections in the United States, are you really worried about the amplific- amplification and proportionality anymore? Because hasn't haven't rumors around elections kind of jumped the shark? I mean, I can see why a lot of people on Facebook and Twitter in 2016 may not have known that there was a lot of misinformation or rumors being spread by Russians or others. But at this point, isn't it all kind of baked in? And the people that are, you know, quote unquote, spreading rumors, for instance, on the Pizzagate scandal, those are people that are going to believe it anyway. Like, what, what, what is the worry that we should really have about amplification or proportionality actually growing? It seems to me that it would actually just kind of decline and then have a steady rate of people that are always going to believe that no matter what. I mean, you definitely have true believers, right? As my as my colleague and collaborator Kate Starbucks likes to say, but in a, many of the cases we have studied before, amplification by sort of key actors that already have large audiences is a really important mechanism for how we see information spread. And in fact, if you think about kind of the way that many social networks are structured um, or put together, patterned, right? You often get cases where information sort of is in a sort of local cluster or a little bubble. And the way that it spreads outside of that is through sort of weaker or longer range ties or through amplification by these hubs that really bring it into other parts of the network. Um, And so from a sort of social network perspective, but also from an attention dynamic perspective, this is actually one of the key questions we've been trying to address in our research um, is to highlight the fact that amplification is really important and it intersects with information dynamics in really critical ways. An example, maybe more specific example of something that we're sort of currently working on, you know, hot off the press kind of thing, is actually during the false missile alert that happened in Hawaii, we've been doing an analysis of posts that if you compare this particular post to that author's history of content and the engagement it normally gets, this post sees orders of magnitude more engagement. So orders of magnitude more retweets as one example. So what about this particular piece of information sort of allowed it to be amplified in such an extreme way? Um, And this is separate from things that are just popular, right? That received the most retweets. This is all sort of on a user basis compared to that person's baseline. Um, And we see what happens is we get people with large audiences shining their spotlight on this particular person and this particular content. And so these are really critical mechanisms, I think, in the ways that information becomes, moves across the social network in specific ways and becomes amplified in ways that it wouldn't have previously. But isn't that also precisely how it becomes siphoned off and contained? I mean, I think that's kind of my larger question is that the more it gets amplified, then the more that we shine a light on it and realize it's nonsense. And then the more that we say, if, you, if you're if you in this part of the, the network, you're just wrong. And no, people are not going to actually join that network. And that network's message is not going to get outside that network beyond a certain point. And so isn't this actually how you sort of destroy the bad nodes in a sense? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't know if this answered it directly, but you know, one thing that we do see in our own research is that you know we've studied rumors, and then we've looked specifically at confirmations of that rumor versus uh, denials of that rumor. And one of the things that we consistently see is 
denials get overwhelmed sometimes by confirmations and that it's there, the denials are there, they can be used as signals of potentially false information. Um, but oftentimes they do sort of get overwhelmed by confirmations and, and you actually see cases where stories out there, it's been completely debunked and then it actually comes, like you wait a little bit of time and it, that story comes back. And when you lose the context of the denials or the certain ways that it's been debunked, it can actually sort of resurge and see sort of cyclic kind of behavior in terms of its um, prevalence on social media. And it's just, I think, a really challenging, complicated question because in social media, you often take messages out of context. You can wade into an information space and see content in isolation that isn't tied to the context in which it was produced, the ways that it's been responded to, all these different things. So it's much easier, I think, in social media platforms to be able to encounter information and not see the sort of linked information that you need and to interpret that in a specific case. I want to pivot here slightly on that point. And I want to ask you about the behavioral aspects, because we talk a lot about the incentives of these structural factors, the structures of these social media platforms. And I'm wondering how you feel about individual behavioral psychology and how that plays a role in the spread of rumors. I know you've talked in the past about our conception of individuals is not necessarily correct. We don't rationally process rumors. We process in more of a binary way of true and false rather than with these gradations of uncertainty. So I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on how that plays into the spread of rumors and the prominence of rumors online and offline. That's a great point, um, Morgan. And, 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 you know, unfortunately, I'm not a psychologist. <laughs> um, I'm a sociologist by training, which means that I tend to think about things as sort of more of the network or group level um, kinds of mechanisms. I will say that I think this is one of the understudied areas. If you think about sort of the misinformation space in particular, we don't often think about what are the individual incentives, reputational or otherwise, that I gain by sharing information, right? The first to be someone or be the first to share information in my network or be the one that shares some like crazy ridiculous thing that we all sort of accept to be false but is just too funny not to share um, or, or too crazy not to share. Um, and so I, I think this is actually one of the areas where we need to do collectively as a field do more research is to figure out what are the individual incentives that people think about when they share content. And, you know, on the flip side of that, what are the kind of possible interventions that might be effective if we want to encourage certain kinds of information behaviors? I'm not a psychologist either, but I will play one on this podcast for the sake of the, the following question, which is, so what? I mean, let's say that people hear rumors or even if they read fake news or misinformation and they just think the wrong thing about something, why does it matter? Do Christians look at Jews and Muslims and say, oh, like they believe rumors and uh, misinformation because they don't believe you know, the same religious text that I believe and vice versa. What difference does it make if people psychologically believe things that are nonsense? People believe nonsense all the time and they, as well as even if this does drive their behavior, also, so what? Like they're still autonomous individuals. If we're talking about election, they can allow whatever information they want to enter into their calculus and their voting behavior or not. You're absolutely right, Jim. So let me ignore ele elections for a second. Um, so another project we're working on is to think about the effect of the current COVID-19 pandemic. 
Right, and one of the things that um, we've been working on in the Center for an Informed Public is to try to understand how misinformation about mask um, recommendations and misinformation about vaccines is affecting um, people's behaviors. And I think this is a, is a case where there is a very clear so what, right? There's a very clear public health crisis that could be coming if people lose their trust in science and medicine they lose their trust in uh, social institutions, in government, and sort of uh, authoritative sources for medical recommendations. And right? if people don't believe in wearing masks, right, we see a lot of really long-term effects of this current pandemic that could be years in the future. Um, and if people don't believe in vaccine science, the sort of science, scientific evidence for the effectiveness of vaccines, then we end up in a situation where we develop a vaccine and no one wants to take it, right? And, and so I think there, there is a so what um, for many of these cases. And actually one of the things that we talk a lot about in the Center for an Informed Public is when we sort of lose our trust in information and sort of we revert back to the, I have to make all decisions based on my own observations and experiences, that's not a very happy future, I think. Let me let me spin a tale to both of you and just get your thoughts about how I think that application and, and really some of the crisis events tagline, which I, I think is great, might actually be really important in this election. So we know from Mueller report, volume one, and, and it's been reported all over the news, that there were instances in 2016 of fake news stories uh, and fake events on Facebook inspiring different groups of people to turn out to events that weren't really real. Um, some of them looked like Black Lives Matter, other than looked like, you know, kind of right-wing militias. And they were even successful to get them to be like across the street from each other at the same time. I think in this election, the fear is that that could happen again, that would be mobilized online and the message would come out online. And, you know, unlike 2016, where I don't think there were occurrences of actual confrontation, that that may actually change in this election. Morgan, do you want to talk about the army for Trump? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't work on that specific piece, so I don't have the the specific details. But uh, yeah, so I, I mean, I, I I say that, but so I'm pointing to the fact that um, you know Morgan and I are working together on this election integrity partnership, um, and one of the sort of empirical analyses, these kind of data reports that our our partnership just produced, was on the recent call for poll workers, but also mm -hmm. um, yeah. what has been called the army for Trump, sort of people to monitor polls. And then there's a very direct call for them to sub submit sort of incidents of potential election fraud. And we just wrote uh, a sort of data brief on this particular case, um, likening it to um, what has been termed sort of active measures in, in the past, um, thinking about how the actual reaction to this information is a bigger threat than what the action actually calls for itself. So maybe I'll refer listeners to that um, if they want to take a look at it. But I think you're you're right, um, James, that there's there's been a lot of rumors about um, um, this. There's some sort of very real ways that that could happen and sort of play out. Um, and then I think there's also you know a lot of things that are probably just going to sort of fizzle and we won't actually see um, realized. Well, I think the active measures analog is smart because when the Soviets have tried to infiltrate and threaten election security in the United States, you know, during the Cold War, they were very subtle about it. 
um, you know, because they don't want blowback, right? Because if your active measures are discovered, then the, the, the jig is up. And I think what's interesting about the army for Trump stuff, and by the way, he's the commander in chief of the armed forces. So he actually already has an army. It's not his personal, but <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I don't think he needs a separate one, but um, he's not gonna, he's, I guess he, because he can't deploy the US army on, on US soil for the purposes that this so-called army for Trump is meant to um, intimidate voters, but the but the thing that I think is is bizarre is that it seems like it's very ham-fisted and it could really overplay their hand and actually cause a reaction from people who believe that this could be a violation of their rights and therefore actually encourage them to mobilize and turn out perhaps even in greater numbers than they would have otherwise. Absolutely, and and you know we were just talking earlier today how how there has been sort of the same call on the left to sort of try to get a lot of pulling volunteers and people to get out the vote and, and all that kind of um, sort of other side of this coin. Okay, so Emma, pivoting over to some of your other work, one pro project in particular you're working on that's really critical voting issue in this election is the relationship between the police and citizens. What I think is interesting about this is that while social media has a place where there's lots of misinformation has been spread, it's also been a platform that's critical towards police accountability and eyewitness accounts being easily posted. Can you tell us a little bit about your research in that area? Absolutely. Um, so we actually went into this, this particular project trying to think about the way that the police communicate with citizens um, and their constituents, um, and also the ways that citizens, like you mentioned, react towards or think about being holding the police accountable for their actions. And actually what we ended up doing in this project was I think um, kind of interesting, but also a function of how police were actually using social media. So we looked at a case study of police use of social media in Seattle and New York. And one of the questions that kind of arose as we were exploring this data was to try to understand how the online audience for these police accounts on social media differs in terms of its social demographic characteristics from the neighborhoods in which these police um, are sort of supposed to serve. And so we um, used some computational methods and some, um, some sort of uh, statistical models to try to estimate the demographics of the online audience of these accounts and compare them to census data in these uh, police precincts. And what we discovered is, is sort of maybe perhaps not surprising, but pretty different um, systematic differences in the racial composition of the online audience and the racial composition of the neighborhoods in these police precincts. And you know, to, to sort of tell that story a little bit more, we often see that non-white social media users are actually overrepresented in sort of precincts that have fairly high socioeconomic status um, and underrepresented in um, places that have lower socioeconomic education kinds of levels. And so, you know, in, in part, partly we uh, were hoping to do a bit more in this domain of trying to understand the police citizen interactions on social media. But as it turned out, there were very few police accounts that were actually designed to engage with citizens. And many of them were treated primarily as a broadcast mechanism. They were even automated in, in sort of a large majority of cases. And so rather than being a, a tool that these police were using to interact with and sort of build community, they became a place for sort of information broadcasting. Um, I do think this, this sort of question of how social media has been used more recently 
to document and advocate for police accountability is is very different nowadays. Um, and it's supposed to put us in a different environment. One of the things that it makes me think of, Emma, is that in developing countries where there is a lack of uh, as good a coverage in traditional media, uh, but there are things like you know police misbehavior, probably at a much higher rate in developing countries than in the United States even, the use of, of people's individual smartphones and cameras and the ability to crowdsource with platforms like Ushahidi or you know, I paid a bribe in India has been really important for holding governments accountable. And to me, that's kind of not an action that most Americans are probably used to, right? Like we don't worry about reporting on, you know, this bureaucrat, you know, it took forever to get my driver's license or it took forever for this or that. And then we have to kind of yep. report it to a system. We, we, have, we have built channels, we have bureaucracies that sort of deal with complaints and things like that. To me, it seems like one of the biggest problems with the police issue is that the police have the ability to actually show what happened with the body cam a lot of times. And that in and of itself is being um, abrogated for whatever reason. That footage isn't always made clear. Maybe the angle is bad. People say the body camera was broken. And that is sort of magnifying the importance of having sort of citizens who happen to be there, you know, obviously very tragically able to film it and then post it. I guess I'm a little bit worried that if that's how we report on what the police are doing as opposed to the police having an ability to robustly report on it themselves, that makes me very nervous about the state of police in the United States. Yeah, I think you're right, Jameson. I mean, it also introduces a whole host of sort of systematic biases where we know that, you know, cell phone coverage or penetration and, you know, comfortable, the sort of ability of citizens to actually do that work is very different in different neighborhoods, right? All these kind of compounding social inequalities come sort of right to the fore in those kind of situations, I think, for sure. Would it at a certain point perhaps encourage people, if you could say a little bit about what deep fakes are, but it would, would it encourage people to actually doctor these photos and put them up online as well on both sides of the coin? Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. So sort of this larger idea of synthetic media is something that the the Center for an Informed Public has also been working more on. And we have some great students who have taken um, leadership roles in some of that work to design educational materials and also just sort of interactive things to communicate with the general public about what deepfakes are and what their te- technical capabilities are. Um, and you know the the basic idea being here that you can use a lot of computational machine learning based models to produce videos that are very lifelike, right? (laughs) Very real looking um, that are fabricated. Things that will come out of your mouth on camera actually never came out of your mouth. And so I think there's a, as people become more aware of some of that technology, we sort of do face this kind of critical transition where we used to put a lot of weight, right, and trust the kind of multimedia that we saw, and we might not be able to do that any longer. But, but is it easy to detect with kind of machine learning and, and things like that? I mean, it depends on <laughs> it depends on what you mean by detect, I think, you know, to every everyday sort of watchers of things, I think it's hard. In fact, this gets back to the core questions when we think about trying to find misinformation on social media, right? It's sometimes very hard, if not impossible, to take an individual piece of information or content or picture or video and say sort of definitively, this is true, this is false, uh, sort of completely out of context. And, uh, you know, it, it takes a bit more sophistication and it, it, it takes a bit more 
some detective forensic work to sort of figure out some of these questions. So talking about that forensic work and, and your network analysis and quantitative work more broadly, I know you basically have to continually create new systems for data scraping and network use because of the sophistication and the pace with which these social media platforms are advancing and the technologies more generally. And I'm wondering if you think that having broader access or better access to the data that is the proprietary data of these social media platforms would help get a better understanding of how things are working under the hood. Or if you think that that's not necessary and it wouldn't necessarily lead to a better understanding of these complexities. Yes, <laughs> that's a one word answer, okay there. Um, this is, I think, one of the most critical issues sort of going forward for this sort of in sort of my broader field actually, um, which I might characterize broadly as computational social science. Right? We have unprecedented sort of observations of human behavior and the way that we as individuals interact with each other, the opportunities and constraints that we have, just really, really exciting data from the perspective of a social scientist. And almost all of it is locked away behind um, these sort of platforms um, that um, log this data as part of their normal interaction. And I think it actually goes beyond what you mentioned there, Morgan, though I do believe that we had better access to some of this data, we would be able to answer some of these questions better and be able to ask really important questions of that data. Um, but I also think this is critical for um, the way that science happens, right? The way that we collaborate with each other, that we share data, the way that we reproduce and sort of support other people's work um, without data that we can sort of freely share um, and have access to in that sort of scientific community, it's almost impossible to do some of those things. Well, Morgan and I can definitely sympathize with wanting to have revealed preferences of, 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 of people in the social world to understand what they really think and what they really believe and how they really behave. So I, I a hearty endorsement uh, to what you said. Where I'd like to end is to ask you, and I know academics hate to project to the future because what if we're wrong? But you know, five to 10 years down the line, the world you work in is so rapidly changing. And so I wonder if you kind of have insights or thoughts about where you think things are headed in, in both a good and bad direction. Yeah, that's a great question, James. You know, 10 years down the road, I don't know. It's funny actually, when, when I started sort of thinking about um, work in this area and sort of even writing project proposals, I always had to include this section, right? what if Twitter doesn't exist a year from now when this project actually starts and can I still answer the questions that I set out to answer? And I think that's that's become a little bit more challenging nowadays because some of the questions are really wrapped up in the, the ways that these platforms were designed. But when we started, when I started in this area, you know, I was really focused on the questions about human behavior, right? And the platform itself was just a way to observe that, right? And I think in a lot of cases, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter what the platform is. People have, people don't change that much, right? And so if you're interested in these questions of how people communicate informally with each other and how they collectively try to make sense of what's going on by talking with each other and sharing information, um, that's gonna happen whether it's on Twitter or whether it's on some new thing 10 years down the road that we can't even think about right now. I think the big question is, will we as researchers have any insight or observation of the, that data as it's being produced 
um, of human behavior. So, you know, for me, it's more about the, the sort of questions that I want to be able to ask, right? Thinking about how networks, right? Social networks, whether they be social interactions or use of language, there's many different ways to conceptualize people being related to each other. Those things aren't going to change. What's going to change is the where, where that happens and how people utilize those tools and technologies um, and whether we as researchers will be able to see what's going on under that hood. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Emma Spiro. And thanks, Morgan Wack. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like the UW Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Wittstock, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UW Political Economy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.